From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the state of sustainable seafood, the University of California steps up to climate change, and companies go with the flow during World Water Week. Our glass is half full this week on 350. It's September 2nd, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here, as always, with Green Biz senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. How are you? I'm good. You excited about the big holiday weekend ahead? I will never complain about a long weekend <laughs> over the summer. Well, you what just, about you? Are you, you in town? Uh, well, i uh, be up in the mountains. Actually, by the time you're listening to this, I will be up in the, uh, the Plumas National Forest in uh, northeastern uh, California hiking and uh, enjoying just being in the in the mountains that's the best way I can think of of uh, getting ready for the crazy 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 September October November that awaits us yeah really how about you are you sticking around town I'm also hightailing it out of here. I'm doing, you're going to the mountains. I'm doing camping on a beach, which is my preferred type of camping. Uh, Santa, so. Santa Cruz? Yep. You knew it. Yeah. That's your go-to place. Well, <laughs> it'll be nice to do that because I know the minute uh, September starts, um, day after Labor Day, uh, I start traveling every week um, through... Um, about the third week in October. So uh, it's just going to be crazy. And of course, one of those weeks, the week of uh, September 19th is Verge Week, where we'll all be down in beautiful Santa Clara, California, the convention center with our four-day event. So uh, gearing up to that is always fun. And of course, we're you know already gearing up for everything that comes after that. Uh, Green Biz 17 in Phoenix in February and even the Verge Hawaii next June in Honolulu. So uh, no rest for the, uh, for the sustainable, I guess. <laughs> so in case you hadn't heard, this week marks a special week for those in the world of sustainability in that it is World Water Week. Our senior writer, Barbara Grady, took a look at what Coca-Cola, a small company in the realm of water users, uh, and its bottlers are doing around water use. It's an interesting piece because it looks not just at sort of the metrics you might think of how many liters of water go into every bottle of Coke or the other beverages they make, but also talked about sort of the longer term issues with water scarcity, um, the potential for more conflict over water worldwide, potentially destabilizing supply chains. I know this is some stuff you've thought a lot about, Joel. Well, yeah, and Coca-Cola and uh, other beverage companies are obviously uh, you know, big part of World Water Week, the beer companies, the, the beverage, other beverage companies. Coke made uh, a number of years ago a commitment to be what they call water neutral in in their operations everywhere they do business around the world. And uh, so I think it's it's just really interesting to watch their progress and also you know their their, their word is to replenish or restore the equivalent of all the water it uses in a year in its global operations in producing bottling and selling all the, you know, orange juice and Fanta and Sprite and Coke and and everything else that it makes. Um, It's also really important to point out that 
Coke ain't doing this alone. Uh, Pepsi also put out, we didn't write about it, but they put out the release this week saying that they were uh, exceeded their goal this year, or I guess it was last year, 20, 2015, of reducing their uh, operational water use by 20%. They actually reduced it by 26%. And this, you know, gets, all of this gets to what we've often talked about uh, on this program and at Green Biz in general, which is that sustainability is not just about doing the right thing. It's not just about saving the planet. It's about risk. Definitely. And the scale here is pretty mind-boggling when you think about uh Coke, as as an example, their 2015 water use totaled 300 billion liters, um, and then they returned a total of 337 billion liters through either these replenishment projects or treated wastewater returns. Um, so we're not talking about little pet projects or R&D on what should we do with the water. This is a massive industrial process that these companies are undertaking. Yeah, and it's not just efficiency measures. A lot of what they're doing, uh, you know, in the case of offsetting uh, the water use in, that they use, because uh, you, can, you can't, I mean, you can make a can of Coke smaller, but you, that's the only way to really totally reduce uh, the volume. But there's only so many things you can do to do that. And to, so to accomplish their goal, they're doing other kinds of things. So this is actually from, from the Pepsi release. Uh, they have a program where they're they're developing and deploying a direct seeding machine uh, for rice farmers. In other words, a machine that puts seeds into the ground, enabling the growers to save more than 10 billion liters of water. This is since 2013. And and I think that's what's interesting here is is that they're not just being more efficient in their operation, but they're helping others to not just be more efficient, but in many cases to uh, disrupt the way they've been operating before, which, which may have you know been extremely water inefficient. And all of a sudden realizing that there is huge opportunity in, in, in making the rest of the world more efficient just as it's doing for itself and in the process to accomplish its replenishing or water neutrality goals. And like you alluded to, uh, this is a, a global issue. And we had another interesting story this week written by a civil engineer named Rajan Jha and environmental consultant Sudhir Pathak. And they took a look at the issue of how our water systems are going to hold up or not hold up as we start to feel the effects of climate change more directly. Um, so they pointed out that about 1.8 billion people on Earth still don't have access to clean, safe water. Um, but owing to extreme events accelerated by global warming, this number is expected to increase to 2.8 billion over the course of the next decade. So pretty crazy stuff to think about. And talking about end-of-pipe solutions, I guess, what's interesting here also is just how much the infrastructure either needs to be built from scratch because it doesn't exist or rebuilt. And, and that's a massive uh, opportunity and a, and a massive, massive cost. I mean, you hear stories about uh, uh, cities in the U.S. like Philadelphia, where they actually have wooden pipes under the streets. Uh, some of the old water mains are still wooden. They're that old. And they leak millions of gallons a day. And when you think about, you know, the need to conserve and water and, and, and all the energy uh, that goes into uh, filtering uh, and and cleaning and transporting, pumping water, 
Um, this has is non-trivial in terms of of the climate impacts, the energy impacts, and of course the impacts on access to water. And that's here in the developed world. So outside the developed world, uh, where the water infrastructure doesn't exist, uh, building that doesn't necessarily get people using more water. It just means they actually use water a lot more efficiently. And so this is very much at the heart of sustainable development. Mm-hmm. And in New York, let's take that as an example, owing that we sort of got a firsthand look at their vulnerability after Hurricane Sandy, their Department of Environmental Protection estimates the risk to their water systems at about a billion dollars over the next 100 years. But they think that damage could exceed $2 billion if no protective measures are taken. So it's this uh, math that at times can seem really daunting, I think, that we're seeing more and more when you start calculating the numbers for climate impacts. But you're going to hear more conversations like this for sure. You pay now or you pay a lot more later. So one of the things that I did this week was moderate a panel at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco, which is one of these venues that has uh, every day multiple events where they bring in newsmakers and thought leaders and others to have interesting discussions. And the interesting discussion that we had was uh, about the University of California's role in confronting climate change and leading the world on a sustainable environmental path, or at least that's the title that the Commonwealth Club gave gave to it. Um, and I, as I said, I was lucky enough to, to host and moderate that session, which was really interesting uh, when you, you know, look at uh, the, the three different types of people that I had there, because this wasn't necessarily deep dive climate scientists. Um, but I think just first of all, a little bit of context about uh, my alma mater, uh, University of California. Um, first of all, California itself has long been a leader in addressing climate change. We've got the enlightened politicians creating some leadership, state and local policies, the, the tech cluster that we talk about all the time that's been working on a low-carbon future. And then this University of, of California, this world's leading, uh, one of the world's leading university systems, 10 campuses, that has uh, researchers and professors, postdocs and graduates who are you know, bringing to bear a lot of resources on climate change. And the university itself has stepped up in 2013 that uh, President Janet Napolitano, the Secretary of the, of the Department of Homeland Security under Obama and before that the governor of Arizona, uh, she announced a, a carbon neutrality initiative that committed the University of California system to net zero greenhouse gas emissions from its buildings and vehicles by 2025, which is 
something that no other major university has done. And and so a lot of what we talked about is how, not just how the university does that, but how it's working on a number of other issues. So who do you have? So uh, three people on the panel. Uh, the first one with the wonderful name of Teeny Matlock. She's the uh, McClatchy Chair of Communications and Professor of Cognitive Sciences Science at the University of California, Merced. Uh, her thing is is looking at uh, language and psychology and climate change. How you think about uh, talk about this and, and to different audiences in different ways. Let's listen to a little bit from Teeny Matlock about the language of climate change. Trying to put complex words into the form of a metaphor that can really help communicate to children, to um, adults of all sorts of backgrounds, and then um, uh, also just being clear in your message. You know, instead of using jargon, try to make the message clear. Going back to these very basic strunk and white kinds of things. You know, why use um, uh, low-frequency word that, that has a very specific meaning when you can just as easily use an everyday word to explain the same sort of thing. One trend that we're seeing in talking about climate change, and we, we see it in other things too, it might be in how we talk about cancer or all sorts of issues or problems in the world, is a journey metaphor. So think about everyday communication. We often talk about journeys towards solutions. Uh, so like on, on the path towards recovery, on the path towards solutions, or working together, moving along the path, we're moving forward, and these sorts of things. That's a very effective way to, to, to get um, groups to buy into thinking about a particular way of uh, thinking about something or, or doing something. So um, that's one that's one metaphor that's being used a lot in, in discourse, uh, everyday informal discourse about climate changes. Another one that we're seeing is battle metaphors, of course. So talking about climate change as a battle, the, the, the war against climate change. But we're also seeing that metaphor used a lot in the discourse about um, uh, discrepancies or, or miscommunication about climate change and the politicization of these issues. So a lot of the focus goes into that as well, and a lot of that is around um, framed in terms of a battle metaphor. Christine Goldbranson is uh, the newest one at the University of California system. She just came on three months ago and is the Senior Vice President for Research, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship, uh, working in the Office of the President for directly reporting directly to uh, President Napolitano. Here's a little bit from Christine Goldbranson talking about what the university is, is just beginning to do in terms of bringing innovations to market that relate to climate change solutions. I've uh, just recently finished uh, my tours of all 10 campuses and being able to, to go into some of the incubators and accelerators that we have on, on our campuses and, and adjacent to our campuses and looking at the wealth of technology and thinking, oh my goodness, wow, if we brought that out, there's so many people today that could be utilizing these technologies. Um, it's just, it's, it's amazing, it really, really. Just, I was amazed at all the different things that I've been seeing. So really looking at, you know, how do we, how do we take the wealth of technologies within our, our UC system, 10 campuses, five medical centers, and three managed national laboratories, and look at them to facilitate getting them out into the marketplace for the betterment of society. 
Uh, UC produces on average five inventions a day, uh, with many of those in the clean energy space. And as you know, California is one of the most energy efficient economies in the world, only second to Germany in renewable power generation. And, and as Joel mentioned about um, UC President Napolitano's carbon neutrality initiative, UC is committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emission by 2025 across all 10 campuses. And so when you look at this, this creates like living labs to identify scalable and relevant solutions, not only nationally, but globally. And so we're really looking at, you know, under this new umbrella of research, innovation, entrepreneurship, how do we, how do we build that strong entrepreneurial ecosystem within, within and throughout the 10 campuses and, and leverage interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approaches to solving these very large challenging problems? And how do we catalyze a culture that prioritizes innovation and entrepreneurship? And then, as we mentioned from, from Dan, how do people reach you? How do you know, these global countries call you? So how do we elevate that brand so people know, hey, we're open for business, we're, we're working on these things, and give us a call and we'll help you solve solve a lot of your problems. If you look at a lot of the technologies, sometimes you have one piece of a portfolio, so to speak, of technology, but if you look at other components or parts within the, the other campuses, you can say, hey, wait, wait, now if we pull this technology, put that together and build a portfolio around it, we could probably solve this challenge. And I think it's really, you know, it's, uh, it's always good to have technology pulled out, right? And you look at the needs of what, what the market is looking for and challenges and then coming in and saying, well, you have something similar to that. Can this be tweaked and maybe solve this problem? So I think it really, uh, it really is good to have a dynamic partnership and that's about building that, that ecosystem that helps to facilitate that with corporates, philanthropists, uh, venture capitalists, and, and uh, a lot of our alumni, which actually we have approximately 1.7 million living alumni. And our old friend Dan Kamen, uh, who's this uh, much credentialed uh, and incredibly impressive uh, energy uh, academic. Um, he is the 1935 Distinguished Professor of Energy at the uh, class of 1935 at the University of California, Berkeley, and has parallel appointments in the Energy and Resources Group, the, the Goldman School of Public Policy, and the Department of Nuclear Engineering. And in his spare time, he serves as uh, the... Uh, Environment and Climate Partnership for the Americas Fellow, appointed by one Secretary of State Hillary Clinton back in 2010. So really interesting stuff. Um, and, and, and one of the things we talked about was, uh, first of all, the role that the University of California has in uh, a lot of the cutting-edge policies that have um, been enacted in California. There was uh, AB 32 about a decade ago, which really set forth the climate plan. Uh, SB 32, uh, Senate Bill 32, which was signed in the last week or so by Governor Brown, which uh, ups the game of, of the state in addressing climate change, the state's cap-and-trade system, the low-carbon fuel standard, and, and other things, and now increasingly in environmental justice. Intriguing. What does that actually mean in this context? Well, uh, environmental justice, first of all, uh, looks at the impact of environmental and climate change in particular, in this case, on uh, communities of color, low-income communities, uh, disadvantaged communities, whatever term you use. And these communities are not just in the United States, not just, certainly not just in California, but around the world uh, are disproportionately affected by climate change. They may be in harm's way for uh, storm surges or live in housing that is 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 
poorly uh, insulated and, and other things, they may be the first ones to lose jobs. And and so um, California's, uh, the new bill I mentioned, SB 32, uh, is quite focused on how do you uh, create systems to uh, address environmental issues and climate issues is in, in particular to California's poorest communities, bringing them uh, so so things like solar and electric cars uh, aren't just the plaything of the rich. Uh, that you bring uh, you know some of the most uh, polluted parts of the California or in the Central Valley where you've got a lot of farm workers and other lower income people, uh, and you know looking at how what can the state do in terms of uh, of technologies, in terms of policies, and other things to clean that up? And then here in in Oakland, for example, just uh, within a mile of as the crow flies from where I'm sitting in the Green Biz office, is we have the Port of Oakland, one of the busiest on the uh, West Coast. But the community around that in West Oakland has disproportionately uh, way higher levels of asthma and, and, and other things coming from the particulates that are given off by the, the parade of trucks that comes through almost 24-7 and the ships docking there and things like that. So these are issues that we don't think about so much around climate change, but we're going to be hearing a lot more about, uh, and I, it was really exciting to see um, what's going on in California. Uh, I asked Dan Cameron to talk a little bit about this, uh, and here's what he had to say. Well, I mean, it's an interesting time because over the last few years, equity and uh, inequality has become a major topic of research and one of the places where academics across many disciplines around the country and definitely in the UC system have made it a focus of the kind of research to activism frontier. And so you're seeing lots and lots of centers, lots of programs focused around this. And when Assembly Bill 32 was passed uh, a decade ago, it wasn't absent, but getting it through the first time, it was really the first of its kind piece of legislation to have this target to bring our emissions down, kind of bend the curve. Um, that was new enough that the attention was really on those numbers, and it wasn't on the broader social issues and the distributional impacts of those policies. SB 32 now, and ironically, it was called AB 32 because then it was then her assembly member, Fran Pavley, who was the author, and now it's SB 32 because now that she's in the Senate, and it's, so it's Senate Bill 32. So there's a nice progression there. Uh, Fran, who was a, uh, a, a primary school teacher for 29 years before joining um, the California uh, government, got lots of input from my group and many others about different mechanisms you can use. And so SB 32 is now quite rich in the requirement that you look at distributional impacts. If you think about a project that is going to be in the Central Valley, you look at the air quality benefits for those most impacted individuals. In fact, of our cap and trade program, over 50% of the monies from that actually go to disadvantaged communities. And that's a huge step forward from how we were thinking a decade ago. And so there's lots of very tangible places where the distribution of impacts across different communities is now part of the conversation. Doesn't mean we always do it right. And there's lots of issues about inner city California communities. There are trans-border issues with Mexico. There's lots of areas to do more work. But it's become central to the dialogue. And I guess the, the last nice feature is that the federal it's not quite a scale-up of California, but the Clean Power Plan, President Obama's plan to give each state a target to reduce their emissions by about a third, actually has carved out about $8 billion in that program to work for and with 
disadvantaged communities and to help retrain communities that need to move out of traditional fossil fuel industries. And so you're seeing a federal level of something that was really started and, and highlighted here. Speaking of the way the university is approaching the issue of climate action, we will be lucky to have one Janet Napolitano joining us at Verge later in September. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, President Napolitano uh, will open the conference on Tuesday the 20th. I'll be doing a main stage interview with her and looking at uh, her really interesting uh, background of, of bringing together security issues, you know, from her experience at Homeland Security and sustainability and education and, and how all that works in a university, what the role of a university can be. Uh, so I'm really excited about her helping us kick Verge off with that conversation. So another person we're going to be having uh, on stage at one of our events is Annie Leonard, the uh, executive director of Greenpeace USA. Uh, she's going to be on stage uh, with me at uh, GreenBiz 17 next February in Phoenix. And uh, speaking of Greenpeace, uh, they put out a new report. Uh, so uh, Lauren, you wrote about it. Why don't you dive right in? Yeah. So the report uh, with the, the rather dramatic name in, in Greenpeace's typical flair, Sea of Distress, looks at food distributors and contractors, big companies like Sodexo, Compass Group, Aramark, uh, as well as some some people that you maybe haven't heard of, AVI Food Systems, Reinhardt Food Service. These are the big companies that are working directly with large suppliers of seafood and bringing them to American consumers in particular uh, through corporate cafeterias, airports. Yosemite National Park apparently has a $2 million a year contract for this sort of stuff. So you could potentially be buying a filet of fish sandwich, all types of places that came from far, far away. And the idea with the report was to dig into, we hear a lot about sustainable seafood at a high level and the fact that um, we know fishing stocks are exploited. The world's oceans are sort of increasingly volatile as they see more of the impacts of climate change. Um, so what's really happening in the seafood industry in terms of sustainability? And from Greenpeace's perspective, there's definitely a lot of work still to be done. Um, while people now recognize that species like tuna are not in great shape, they are still exploited at a pretty rapid pace. Um, there's also concerns about alleged labor violations in the U.S. and abroad, which often fall outside the purview of sustainability certifications. So seafood, uh, like so many other products, have long uh, supply chains uh, that go many, many steps before they get to the market or the restaurant. Uh, what are the suppliers we're talking about here? Yeah, so we really are talking about sort of the mother of supply chain challenges here. Um, according to Greenpeace, the issues sort of start at the very root of the procurement process where you have big fishing operations 
in deep sea areas, a lot happening off the coast of Southeast Asia. Uh, companies like Thai Union uh, has seen some litigation recently. Uh, so like other industries, anything from electronics to textile manufacturing, a lot of the impetus to actually move the needle on sustainability issues is put on the large buyers. So it's kind of this push and pull. How much market share does somebody have? How much can they push their supplier to adopt new sustainability standards? It's definitely a dance we hear a lot about in this world. Um, uh, but I did ask Greenpeace senior ocean campaigner David Pinsky a little bit about this. And here's what he had to say about the unique sustainability challenges facing the seafood supply chain. The global industry, so we're dealing with overfishing, destructive fishing, um, illegal fishing. Uh, so, you know, upwards of $20 billion a year of stolen seafood. Um, and unfortunately, much of that can impact coastal communities and folks that are relying on on, on fishing for their primary source of protein and their livelihoods. Um, and then you add labor uh, concerns, uh, human rights abuses, and much focus has been put in Southeast Asia. And one of the interesting and very troubling things is as we see fewer stocks, um, uh, as we see vessels having to go further out to sea, to the high seas, they're relying on this process um, we talk about in the worker in the Protecting Workers' Rights section of the report, it's called Transshipment at Sea, um, where uh, you'll have a smaller vessel that's out there and can be out, can be out at sea for months or years at a time, and then a larger vessel will come uh, so the smaller one can offload its catch and continue fishing and refuel and get um, restocked. And so what that can actually create is floating prisons where trafficked workers can remain at sea for months or years at a time with no means of escape. And so we're seeing this as a direct result of um, overfishing and, and destructive fishing. So it's, it's economically makes more sense for these big businesses uh, to have their vessels out there instead of coming back to port. Um, and that's, you know, that's not the true cost of fishing. So one of the things I don't really understand here, Lauren, is that there's already certifications like the Marine Stewardship Council certification that attests to sustainable seafood. So what does Greenpeace say is missing? Yeah, so it's really an issue of sort of scope and ambition. While people, uh, Greenpeace, isn't really disputing that no one recognizes seafood sustainability as an issue. Obviously, they do. Um, but it's sort of an issue, we put it uh, other industries in this context, sometimes it's not just doing less bad, like using better types of tuna, but maybe looking at ways to actually improve ocean ecosystems. So reconsidering the entire way we consume fish. And this is going to be an increasing issue um, because of the growing global population. We hear a lot about food scarcity in general, but seafood is really uh, likely to be leaned on pretty hard in developing economies in particular for protein. Um, so fish and aquaculture, uh, sort of the farmed fish is definitely an area to watch. Labor, like I said, also a very live issue in the supply chain. So Greenpeace does recommend strong public policies coming out of companies operating in this space. And interestingly, there are some nascent pilot projects underway for interesting sort of supply chain traceability technology. Um, but those are early stage R&D. Uh, we don't yet have a way to, to fully track from fishing line to the consumer's plate. But here's Pinsky from Greenpeace Again, talking about the ways the seafood industry could really make good on its sustainability ambitions. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. One of the things we point out in the report is a 
the title of the assessment, it's What's Hot Culinary Forecast for 2016. And I think this is uh, Nation's Restaurant News is the outlet. And in the top 10 trends, you have local meat and seafood, you have sustainable seafood, and environmental sustainability. Those are among the top 10 trends this year. Um, and that's a, that's a survey of over a thousand top chefs throughout the country. And so we're seeing that sustainable seafood has been a trend for many years now. Millennials are a key demographic for food service companies. And so they're, they're pulling out all the stops to ensure that they can get millennials business and cater to their interests. And so I think it's something that is certainly getting increasing attention. It's not as simple as getting MSC certified seafood. Uh, unfortunately, MSC does not have robust measures uh, to focus on labor and human rights. Uh, they're working to develop those standards, but that's years down the road. So companies, what they really need to do if, if they're planning to lead on sustainable and ethical seafood is to have internal uh, policies, a robust seafood sourcing policies, and also to do audits, uh, work with independent um, third-party auditors that can benchmark their standards um, against what's actually happening uh, in the real world to see if indeed the products they're receiving are sustainable and, and socially responsible. Great. So uh, we need a sea change in seafood. Thanks, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find links to the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. Thanks again to our podcast director, Sir Ray Melconian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.